Hey, before we jump in, HashRateUp is not just a podcast. I want to be your partner in the ever-evolving world of the Bitcoin mining industry. Through extensive connections and by constantly updating research, I can help you find hosting solutions that match your needs and budget, while also providing competitive pricing on the latest ASIC miners. So if you are ready to take your Bitcoin mining operation to the next level, let's work together to find quality hosting and ASICs at prices that won't break the bank. The best part about this? My input comes free of charge. Whether you're a seasoned miner or just dipping your toes into the world of Bitcoin mining, I'm here to help you make the first or next steps. They are great peace of mind hosting opportunities. Whether you're an individual with a couple of ASICs or an institution with 500 to 2000 units, or you want to go even larger than that, let me help you find competitive offers from well-positioned participants in the mining industry around the world. You can find my contact information below in the show notes. Let's get your hash rate up. With that being said, let's jump in. All right, announcements galore. One more before we get started. Adopting Bitcoin Conference happens in Cape Town from the 26th to the 28th of January this year. So it's like three weeks away. If you are keen to do an impromptu journey to Africa, consider coming to Cape Town. It's a beautiful city, beautiful setting right next to the Table Mountain, two oceans. Can't really find anything better than that. Adopting Bitcoin will have speakers from Gen3, Bitcoin Ikazi, Beatrice Builders, Anita Posh, Paco from Run With Bitcoin, good friend of ours is coming. Gridless will be there, many more. I will be speaking as well. So if you are keen for another conference, come down to Cape Town and come join us for some good content, some good vibes and a good old fashioned South African braai. Hello everybody, this is Hashred Up once more. I'm today joined by Charlie Schumacher. Is that pronounced correctly, Charlie? You can say it better uh, than I yeah, can. It's the, it's the German <laughs> pronunciation, like the race dog driver, right? Um, today we're going to get into what Marathon right. does um, or has been doing and is still planning to do before the halving. Uh, I think it's going to be a very interesting episode. So thank you very much for coming on during the holidays while we're recording. It's the 28th of, of December. So I really appreciate you. Uh, being here between Christmas and the New Year, I know that's always a, a tough time to make appointments. So, so thank you very much. Um, before we get into it, Charlie, what's the current block height? Can you give us that, please? Oh, uh, offhand, uh, I don't know. You read it to me a second ago. And <laughs> We're at eight two three three hundred, eight two three three zero zero. Um, there we go. The current hash rate, 30-day uh, hash rate is at 500 exahashes per second, steadily climbing. We already reached that, that year-end target of 500 uh, that I know some people have had. And the hash price currently sits at 103.79. Um, and the hash price from May, according to the Luxa, Luxa Futures uh, forward hash price, is just at around 50. Where do you think it's going to be at? Is 50 reasonable? Would you be a buyer here or not? uh 50 sorry 50 by what 50 time by frame? may yeah 50 dollars per pet by may yeah. uh for hash price uh that seems aggressive but it all depends on like what happens to bitcoin right um the that's really like the driving function in hash price over the short time frame uh right because it's there's real world constraints in mining it takes time to buy miners, buy facilities, build them out, like add miners online. So it really just completely depends on 
what happens to the price of Bitcoin over the next few months. Um, for me, that maybe feels a little aggressive uh, by May, um, but by end of year, uh, who knows? I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't hate to see that. It'd be great for uh, the mining industry and for Marathon. And in the last, you know, the last time after having event, and we tend to see these like very, very profitable times in mining where you get these short intervals of, you know, 80, 90% margins in the businesses. So I think everyone would like to see that. Uh, I think there's a lot of people hoping that happens. Uh, we certainly would love to see it, but also you have to plan for things not going in that direction, right? How's that, um, how's that feeling? So we'll yeah, see. How's that feeling in comparison now with, uh, with the hash price going up so much because of the, the full blocks that we're seeing? Everybody's spending their, their Christmas money to do transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain right now. Yeah, yeah, everyone's uh, everyone's trying to mint NFTs or something for uh, for holidays. Yeah, I, I mean, guess. as uh, miners, you don't really it's... care. Um, you know, everybody that mines Bitcoin is like, yeah, okay, I'll take the extra money. It's just uh, it, it maybe it takes yeah. what's to come. No, it helps substantially, and I think it's uh, it's. Well, so in the near term, it obviously helps because like for the same amount of like hash power input costs, you're receiving more Bitcoin and Marathon's actually in a particularly unique position in this instance because we own our own mining pool. So uh, because we have so much hash rate uh, and because we own our own, we tend to capture like a large percentage of blocks, right? In proportion, typically with the amount of hash rate we have relative to the rest of the network. But what's unique about like our situation that we're seeing right now is we don't have to share the transaction fees with other people because we're the only ones in our pool. So we're earning like a much higher amount of Bitcoin this month. At least it looks like that so far from the data, like the numbers aren't final yet, right? But um, uh, relative to if we had been in a pool with lots of other people in it. Um, so it's like a uniquely like good month, uh, not just for the industry, but for Marathon as well. And then, you know, if I think a little bit longer term or more strategically, one of the things that's very encouraging about it is there's this theory that at some point transaction fees have to outpace block rewards for mining to remain profitable and for people to continue mining. And uh, obviously, no one knows exact if that's actually going to play out. But it has been nice, you know, at least twice this year, we've had these periods where transaction fees have gone up quite substantially. And so you are, it's, there's maybe some indications that like that might be feasible, right? Or it's starting to crystallize that uh, a little bit in people's minds that that's something that could potentially happen down the road. So it is it is encouraging, I would say, like near term for the business, but also potentially long term for like viability of Bitcoin mining um, as a as an industry. Why did you guys decide to do that? To go with your own pool? Why did no other publicly listed company go that route yet? There are. It's changed a lot. There were a lot of reasons for it. If you go back to very early days, part of it, I would, if I actually, if I could, I can actually draw a consistent through line. Part of it is that like, we're really big on trying to own our own technology and having a lot of uh, input over what we think we can do with the company from a technological perspective. So today that's like, that's like very clear across the business. Uh, we're the only miner who has this vertically integrated tech stack. So we're investing or developing pieces of technology all the way from the pool down to the ASIC. Um, so owning our own mining pool, uh, working on our own emerging equipment, firmware. And then also, obviously, we have an investment in a uh, Bitcoin mining uh, hardware developer, which is Oridine. So we're like very integrated from that perspective. If I go back, though, to the early days, early-ish days of Marathon, they feel forever ago. They were two years ago, right? Something like that. Um, part of the reason we developed our own pool was uh, 
we there was this idea actually i don't know how many people know the story but uh it's it's funny because it's kind of come back up in conversation but there was this notion at the time as institutional investors were getting introduced to bitcoin that bitcoin was for bad actors and for money laundering and terrorist financing and it was this you know sketchy dirty thing and so uh to try to provide transparency into that process, we wanted our own pool. And we particularly had people asking us if it's possible to filter wallets that were on the OFAC list. Like, can you filter transactions? Is that feasible? Um, we didn't know at the time. We thought like, we're like, sure, let's try it. If there's institutional demand and interest and uh, let's, let's see if that's possible. Uh, it turns out, so that was like the original genesis actually of us having our own pool, uh, which caused uh, quite a bit of like uproar uh, within the Bitcoin community and for really good reasons, right? Uh, you're questioning like Bitcoin's fungibility. You're questioning like the, you know, the principle that everyone should have the right to just like trade in Bitcoin. And so it, it really violates some of the core principles that a lot of people in the industry have. And so it turned out to be this like hugely unpopular thing of like trying to uh, filter transactions with a pool. It also turned out just not to work technically. And it turned out that there was no market for it. Like people actually weren't interested in it. They were just talking about it, but they they wouldn't pay a premium for it. Or there's, you know, there's no monetary value in it. So we like shut that down really quickly. And then we were left with operating our own pool. Didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, for a time we had other people join it. And so we were trying to, uh, I don't think anyone really quite understood the economic value in pools yet. And so there was just a lot of ideas floating around. Uh, so there was a period of time where other people were in the pool. Uh, honestly, for like accounting reasons, that became like quite a nightmare for us. Um, and so we ended up uh, just going back to Marathon being the only member in the pool, uh, which with the amount that we were intending to grow and that we have grown, we thought that it was advantageous for us to have our own pool. We weren't entirely sure of what all the benefits were going to be. And to be honest, still don't know a hundred percent of them, but so far it's actually ended up being like quite advantageous for us. And in, in instances like this month where transaction fees are extremely high. Yeah. I mean, you do save over time that two or 1% or even less. I don't know what you, what you guys would regularly pay. Um, of, of, of paying somebody else, right? And I think the the room to pay somebody else's margin yeah. with your revenue um, becomes smaller and smaller uh, as we as we go into more and more halvings, right? So, but it would be interesting. That's right. That would have been my follow up question now to to say, okay, if you're gonna exclude certain transactions, right? What would be next? Like first, it's OFAC transactions. Okay, what what other transactions would have to be filtered out over time potentially? And then how much of a um, disadvantage would you have financially over other pools where where people would mine those transactions and then earn more money mining than you guys would? But it's, a, it's an interesting game theory. And I think, yeah, um, I think it's a very positive thing that at the end of the day, um, miners that that um, act according to the game theory and the the free market principles have an advantage over those that do not. I mean, we currently see this playing out in the space. I'm sure you followed it a bit. We don't have to get into that now around the whole ordinals debate, like who who includes them, who doesn't, what miners build their own blocks and all of that. I think it's 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 it keeps the keeps people on the on their toes, 
right? From from this perspective that I have from the African side, where you where you work with, with a lot of people that do not have the financial means to pay thirty dollars for Bitcoin transactions or even ten or five, right? You you start to wonder um, how much education really has been done, and I personally believe in the in the in the thought that it drives second layers, but. Um, all of that aside, maybe we can get into that another time. Um, I just wanted to talk about the general strategies that you guys um, are following a bit more, because as you already said, you you have your own mining um, gear that you're developing. You develop your own firmware. You have your own pool. Typically, Marathon has always done a, a hosting um, style business, right, where you pay other people to run the infrastructure to run the machines for you. Um, as I just said, I think that the margin to do that gets gets slimmer and slimmer, or, or the room to do that gets slimmer and slimmer. And so now you see a bunch of other things, right? You guys just went into into Paraguay. Um, you guys just bought a 390 megawatt mining site. I, I saw the, that piece of news. Let's let's talk about Paraguay first. Why why Paraguay after the sure. Middle East? Um, what's the strategy there long term? You know, a big piece of it, we're not the first people down there. I'd love to say that we were. Um, it's funny, when we first uh, found out about Paraguay uh, and we started vetting it, it was kind of early in the process. And then within a couple months, it was like several other miners were already down there and and, uh, and mining there. So Paraguay is very unique because uh, it has a huge amount of stranded renewable energy. Uh, specifically, there's uh, the IT I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, but I think it's the Itapu Dam. Um, it's the second largest dam in the world. It produces 14 gigawatts of power per year. Half of that goes to Paraguay, half of it goes to Brazil. Something that's interesting is the entire country of Paraguay only consumes about three and a half gigawatts of power per year. So, and not and because of lack of transmission lines, not all of that power comes from the the dam itself. So, over 50% of the power that the dam can produce for the country of Paraguay has no offtake for it. It's wasted. So as an asset, that's a highly unproductive asset. Um, it's very, and therefore it's essentially, it's, you know, an economic drain, right? So the idea was if you can take Bitcoin miners and establish them there and they can soak up that extra capacity and serve as a baseload customer for that power asset, it can help keep that asset. It can make that asset more profitable and help keep it running uh, for the people who would actually be drawing power off of it. And that idea has now been around for a little while, I would say maybe like two years, year and a half or so in the Bitcoin mining space. It started a lot in Texas because Texas has a lot of uh, stranded power. There's a lot of wind in Texas. Uh, Texas is also very open to Bitcoin mining and interested in the grid balancing piece of the equation, uh, which was also what led to our project in Abu Dhabi was they, were, they had a lot of excess power. They're interested in using Bitcoin mining for grid stability and balancing load. Um, but it turns out, you know, as people started to look outside of Texas or capacity started to get soaked up there, the question became like, well, where else in the world is there excess power? Uh, it turns out that there's quite a bit in certain regions. You just have to weigh uh, one, you have to find it. You have to be looking for it, right? And aware of it. Uh, and then two, you have to also then weigh uh, the different costs associated with it or the different risks of operating in different countries or internationally. Uh, Paraguay kind of fit the bill for us. Uh, it was stranded renewable power, it was, so it was low cost for us. Uh, it allows us to provide a service to the power provider there uh, that they needed, which is great. And I think how people should start to think about Bitcoin mining. Um, 
And then it's also a fairly stable regime now. Um, and so the, the low cost for us with the regime stability was like a uh, highly attractive like situation. And it, and I should say it's a it's a smaller project as far as our deployments goes, uh, but it's something that we're interested in scaling up if it does you know work the way we expect it to. Is this a um, model where you where you own the infrastructure again yourself, or is this a hosted mining model? So this is a joint venture. It's similar to what we did in Abu Dhabi. So we have a local partner okay. down there. Uh, they're called Penguin Digital, and they do a lot of work in Paraguay. Um, Uh, not just with the Bitcoin mining space, but also with uh, providing like educational courses for people and trying to like develop uh, the intellectual expertise of the of the country, which is like great. We really like their the way they're very mission oriented in that uh, in that way. And Bitcoin mining is just a component of their sort of mission, if you would. Um, so it's a joint venture. We contributed a certain percentage of capital. They contribute a certain percentage of capital, and that can be in. Um, That could be like dollars or that could be an equipment, right? That could be an infrastructure, it could be in miners, things along those lines. Okay, interesting. Um, and how do you see pricing in, in Latin America and Paraguay, especially compared with, with the Middle East and the US? Because from my standpoint, the US is actually super competitive still when it comes to, to pricing uh, and especially adjusted for risk when it comes to Bitcoin mining. At least that's my, my, my feeling on the situation. You might have a different one if, mm -hmm. you, if you could get into that a bit no i think that's i think that's true that and that was that's a surprising thing and still this you know this misunderstanding of from people who aren't in the industry they just think bitcoin miners are taking electricity from consumers and stuff right that's still a bit of the knock you see in the in the mainstream but there's just like that's obviously untrue because it would be far too expensive for us to do it you know Uh, Bitcoin miners can't pay 17 cents a kilowatt hour, like it doesn't work. So they have to go to where there is the cheapest energy possible. And that has basically proven to be stranded power. Um, it happens that there's a lot of stranded renewable power, because if you think about there's sort of this power stack, you can think about um, you have baseload power, which is like coal and nuclear, things that are very difficult to turn on and off and are highly, very, very reliable. And then you have natural gas, which sits on top of that, a little bit easier to turn on and off, also very reliable. And then on top of that, you have things like wind and solar, uh, which are intermittent and easy to turn on and off. So those end up being uh, curtailed or turned off if there's no offtake for that. Because of that, if there's no offtake for that, uh, the power providers who run like wind and solar plants are willing, and if you go to the right places, to offer it for extremely cheap power. Uh, you know, a low, I mean, there's, there's places in the United States where you can get, you know, four cent power pricing uh, or lower. Uh, what's also interesting though, is like, if you consider the question though, is always like, where can you find cheaper power? Right. Um, as having happen, margins get tighter in this industry. The easiest thing you can do is reduce your costs. You're always trying to reduce your your input costs and energy is by far the biggest component of input costs of running a, a Bitcoin mining operation. So something that we've been looking at is uh, using methane from landfills to power Bitcoin miners. And we have a small pilot project that we announced, uh, I think at the start of November um, that's in Utah and it's running on a landfill there. And actually of all of our sites, I don't think we've disclosed the exact power pricing there, but of all the sites we have, that's the cheapest energy 
that we have. Um, and it's kind of, and it's, and the reason for it is it's, it was a wasted byproduct and a headache for the landfill, which is methane that is now being used as a resource for Bitcoin mining. So, you know, resources are things that can be used productively, otherwise they're not resources. And so we basically took this thing that was a waste and a headache, which was methane, and then turned it into a resource, uh, which is pretty amazing. And because of that, and because it was a headache, it's, it's something that we can use as very efficient and cheap power. Uh, it also has the added benefit of reducing methane emissions, which is a huge environmental concern. I think all of this leads back to to the halving, not just this one, but obviously also the halvings down the line, right? As you just said again, we the margins get slimmer to pay somebody else, and so you guys doing the methane mining, you guys having the pool, you guys diversifying to other to other areas means you're thinking long term. Um, shrimp coin is also one of those. Um, projects, I think. Can you tell people a bit about that? Because I mean, we, we've covered methane on on the podcast before, um, but I mean, there, there's there's a bunch of uh, uh, people that are looking at that as well. Um, but yeah, essentially, the idea is, what added benefit can I have with my ASICs that ideally somebody pays me for, right? In flared gas and methane mining, That's you right. might look at CO2 certificates, whatever you may think of them. Uh, and shrimp coin is another one of those. What's what's the idea around that? Yeah, it, it kind of, you know, to be honest, I think it starts with a bit of a shift in how you just think about Bitcoin mining or think about the industry as a whole. In the past, it's been uh, this very sort of capitalistic uh, approach to just like maximizing profits, which I'm all for and fully support. But what you end up doing in that instance is going into conversations or thinking about problems is just, I want to maximize my Bitcoin production, make as much money as I can, where can I find cheap energy? Someone give me cheap energy. Uh, what we're starting to realize though, and I think you'll see the whole industry kind of like shift around this over the next couple of years, is that actually Bitcoin mining is a technology that can solve all sorts of different problems. And there are all these positive externalities that come off of Bitcoin mining. But if you think about those as services and who could be potential clients of those services, it completely changes your perspective and allows you to get like significantly more creative about how you utilize Bitcoin mining and where you can deploy it. So one of those is uh, this idea of shrimp farming, uh, which you obviously like mentioned and have like read a little bit about. Um, we're kind of putting this under this broader category as a company that we're calling energy harvesting. So uh, basically using uh, the heat from our operations or something else to create a new service or a benefit. Um, so there's a lot of services, there's a lot of things out there like, uh, I think it's aquaculture, uh, like shrimp farming that require heat as like part of their input, as part of their operations. And it's a cost for them, it's an input cost. Well, it happens to be a byproduct of Bitcoin miners. Bitcoin miners are extremely efficient at converting electricity into heat. They're more efficient than some space heaters, which are designed to do nothing but convert electricity into heat. Um, and so the idea came, well, if, if we can sell that as a service to people and we can add value there, uh, then they could pay us for that heat. And that can help us reduce our costs. It also could help us like get access to power or places that we hadn't thought about before. So shrimp farming is one that's super interesting. Um, basically what you're doing is uh, you have to use immersion technology to do this, um, but you would be 
uh, using the, uh, the, the immersion liquid that's like warmed from Bitcoin miners to like uh, run through the farm. And you're using that to like heat tanks to keep them at a certain temperature to like grow protein. Um, people also do this with greenhouses, uh, yeah. which is another thing that we've uh, been looking into. We haven't done that yet, but that's like, that's not super uncommon in the space. Um, very interestingly, the big problem with some of these projects is that we create too much heat. Uh, Bitcoin miners are like too good at creating heat. So you need like really large scale, uh, greenhouses or trim farms, uh, if you want to do this, which is actually a great problem to have, right? Um, you're hyper efficient at doing that. Another one that's interesting is like heating buildings. Um, so there are places in the world where uh, Scandinavia, for example, where they use hot water pipes throughout cities uh, or to heat buildings and heat infrastructure. And right now that's that's an input cost for them, right? Um, but we have this as a free service that we could provide. So there's a world in which you you basically start to look at these things and you say, well, where else can I add value as a, as a company? Um, and if you can do that, that person will pay you for that value. And as a Bitcoin miner, really what that's doing is subsidizing your energy costs. And so that helps you as a business uh, get much closer to zero cost energy, which is like the holy grail in Bitcoin mining. Um, because if you have that, then you can stay mining essentially forever, right? So by I think by reframing things and thinking about Bitcoin miners as technologies that can provide all these different benefits to lots of different industries, it allows you to get much more creative about how you think about your input costs and your energy uh, costs as a business. Yeah, you can, uh, to rephrase it, you can stay mining as long as nobody else or not the majority of the network gets paid more than you do per kilowatt hour consumed, right? Um, that's why I, that's yeah. why I like the, the, the Nordics in Europe so much because you've got um, great load response programs. Um, you've got great district heating networks. You've got cheap power uh, perspectively in the no northern parts of the Nordics in EU. So that's why I, I like to look at that region uh, yep. and follow it quite closely to see what kind of projects develop there. Because at the end of the day, that that's that's where I think it's going to go. Another reason that I'm very focused on is Africa. <laughs> um, and I know you guys have, have, have looked at that as well. Because nowhere in the world do you have yeah. the situation of a completely underdeveloped grid infrastructure coupled with enormous amounts of renewable energy. Um, and that makes it an ideal breeding yeah. ground for, for Bitcoin, really. Um, what sort of steps, what can you say about Marathon going into, into Africa and, and moving into that part of the world? Have you guys explored it at all? Yeah, we have. Our team was in... Um... Kenya earlier this year and has had some like very productive conversations uh, with some folks in country. Uh, we try not to talk too much about projects that are like in the works or may come to mm. fruition until they, until they have. So I don't want to go into like a ton of specifics, but it is a really, really interesting place um, because there is a surprising, for two reasons. One, there's a surprising amount of energy that's already there that's being underutilized. Uh, there are hydro dams. It's a similar situation to Paraguay, though at different scale. There are, hydro dams, for example, that people that they don't have enough offtake for. And so those projects aren't profitable. And if they're not profitable, they're not going to run. And anyone who is buying off of them is suddenly going to be out of power. So that's not a situation you want. You want to you want to increase the profitability of those projects. And the easiest way to do that is Bitcoin mining, right? It's a it's a base load consumer that would love cheap power. And if you're a power provider, you'd rather have some revenues than no revenues. Um, that's also where it becomes really interesting with uh, funding new renewable energy projects or just new power projects in general, 
And the industry likes to talk about this, like, you know, within the echo chamber, there's the Bitcoin mining industry. And uh, I don't know that that many people in the energy space get it yet, but we're certainly working on that as a company is trying to help educate them that if you are looking to build a new energy project, um, it's super expensive. You don't necessarily know if you're going to have consumers for it. Um, transmission lines is a huge complication too. In the US, it takes an average of five years to get transmission connection for energy projects. And so if you built your site and you don't have con you know transmission connection, that's years of wasted yeah. uh, revenues, right? Huge, huge opportunity cost. And so if you partner with a Bitcoin miner as you're building out your new project, basically what you do is you have a guaranteed customer from day one when the site is up and running that you can start utilizing. Um, and then you can worry about transmission or then you could worry about, you know, building out uh, uh, other infrastructure that would utilize the power. So it's, I think the, I think that's a huge opportunity in Africa, both those, which is stuff that we're super excited about either in increasing profitability of current projects, which is going to allow energy to stay online uh, or incentivize the growth of new energy so that more people have access to power in country. I think both those are really exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that that only Bitcoin mining can do, right? And something, um, a possibility right. that we didn't have at this scale as as humanity, basically, eight years ago, right? The, the, the first mover, yep. uh, uh, the first consumer, last consumer uh, energy model, where you even have projects in Kenya, right? That, that are only, that, that investors typically don't touch or foreign aid funds or whatever don't touch because there's no, uh, there's no financial feasibility there, right? And now come Bitcoin miners come along and say, Hey, I'll take actually, I'll take those five megawatts of stranded power gladly at three, four cents. Um, let's go, you know, and it changes right. everything. Um, yeah, but that's, that's all still a, a smaller scale. I don't know how many megawatts do you guys have under operation currently? Do you have that off the top? Uh, let's see. I'm going to, yeah, we just doubled our capacity basically, uh, like a week ago or so with this acquisition, with these acquisitions that we made. Yeah. So we were, um, around a little under 500 megawatts or so, uh, maybe 400 of capacity. And then we're, you know, we're closer to about uh, just under a gigawatt. We're about 900 megawatts uh, after these acquisitions that we made. Insane. You, the site you bought, I read, was 390 megawatts? In total, yeah. We purchased two. One is in Kearney, Nebraska. Uh, it's a smaller site. And then the other is in Granbury, Texas. Both of them are former Compute North sites, okay. uh, which was the, our first big hosting provider. So we're actually super familiar with both those sites. We've had miners running in Kearney, Nebraska since I think 2018, like some of our first deployments were there. And then uh, we've had miners running in Granbury, Texas for well over a year at this point. Um, but, you know, with Compute North's bankruptcy, those were taken over by a different company called Generate Capital. Um, which, you know, they just didn't really want to be in the industry. It's not like their expertise or their space that they wanted to be in. So we had an opportunity to, to purchase those, uh, which came up, which was great and fit super well with our strategy of, uh, speaking of the having like really important to reduce costs, right. Um, to protect you from downside by owning the sites, we have a big opportunity to do that. And also the timing works well for us because we've spent a lot of the last year and a half developing our own 
technology, whether that's the pool or it's uh, emergent infrastructure, like what we've deployed in Abu Dhabi. And if we own and operate our own sites, we have the ability to really kind of like utilize our technical expertise and like put it to work because we have full control over it, as opposed to, you know, having all this knowledge or having this proprietary technology and going to someone else and say, hey, please use this uh, for us because we think it's helpful. Um, so it's it was a it, we're super, super excited about those deals. It gives us a lot of room to grow. It really helps, uh, I think, in terms of reducing costs at those sites um, and uh, gives us a lot of room to kind of play with our own tech, which is like really exciting. What challenges come along with that, Charlie, going from purely having hosted miners as a company to then operating your own 390 megawatts facility. Is it a bunch of hiring you guys have to do? What does that look like for you internally? Like, how do you, how do you manage uh, a complete shift in, in the operations of your own machines? Yeah, it definitely, we're, we're definitely going to be adding to the team for sure. You need far more people. Uh, part of the, you know, the, uh, advantage or interesting component of like the old asset light model, which was just buy machines and outsource everything was you could stay super, super lean as a team. Um, it turned out though, like, as we found that that wasn't, that like was great in theory, but in practicality, you actually needed the technical buying expertise in house, no matter what, because you can't in super mature industries, uh, you can trust outsourcing a hundred percent, but in newer stuff worth, everyone's figuring this out as they go. And, you know, this is an industry built on duct tape still, basically. Um, you want to have like that information in house and that, uh, that knowledge in house. So you understand how to design sites, how to vet sites. Like, uh, and so we were kind of scaling the team anyways. I mean, we went, we doubled the team in size this year. We're up to about 55 employees, I think now. Um, but with owning the sites, we'll definitely have more, people you need more operators right uh, like boots on the ground right um so that's definitely a shift um though i think otherwise it's not other than kind of more uh people i don't know that it's going to change drastically we we've already been like pretty hands-on with a lot of our sites the joint ventures we've done were kind of a stepping stone um the site in abu dhabi we were instrumental in the development and the design of that site. So it's something, you know, we started Pure Asset Light where we just outsourced, we bought machines and outsourced everything. And by the way, the reason for that is because of the constraint, there's kind of three constraints in mining and we can talk about that if you want. Um, and those have shifted, I think, this having versus last having. So we've shifted our strategy too. Um, but we've, you know, we have some of the, the people who've built some of the best sites in the world like on our team. And so it's just a matter of like scaling that expertise at this point, as opposed to going and finding it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I would, what I would have asked next is if, if you have a large operation in Texas, especially right where, where, where the aircode grid, I don't know if it's aircode or not, uh, can, can be fickle. Um, do you guys still outsource stuff in the operations or is it a hundred percent in-house? Like for instance, the energy trading part, right? Is that something you then outsource to, to vendors or the insurance or whatever? Like what parts of your own operations do you, do you still keep, um, outside of your own control and pay somebody else for basically? So we're still actually working through like the specifics of that, like how much of that is going to be fully in-house versus how much of that we're going to be. Uh, you know, using outside uh, folks for the energy uh, trading, though, I think is something that uh, will 
if we're not fully doing it in-house, we have people internally who are experts in doing that who will be managing that process. And that actually helps a lot. That's not something that we had the ability to participate in um, previously uh, just by being a tenant at that site. Uh, but by owning it, we can participate in energy harvesting, which is hugely helpful and can really, you know, the, it can really, really help reduce costs uh, at those sites. So we're, we're pretty excited about okay, that. Nice. The three constraints, Charlie, let's get into it. What's the first one? Yeah. So there's, so there's basically three, there's access to capital, there's access to uh, machines and mining hardware, and then there's access to, we'll say infrastructure, which would be power data centers, transformers, switchgear, stuff like that. If you go back to the last, um, the last having, so let's go back to like 2020. And if you, Marathon was able to scale as a company much faster than its competition. And the reason for that was basically because we bought all of the machines before anyone else could. So our prior CEO before Fred, uh, Merrick Okamoto, had this idea, something that he had observed in prior having events is when uh, Bitcoin goes up in price after havings, which has historically happened, uh, it becomes very profitable to mine Bitcoin. And this is what you were referencing at the beginning with, you know, hash price predictions, right? So in that scenario, suddenly everyone sees Bitcoin mining as this hugely profitable business. So they want to get into it. So they go out and try to buy all these, all the machines in order to start plugging them in. What that does, though, is uh, it then means that machines become very scarce, so they go up in value. They become very expensive. So in 2020, the theory was, well, that's going to happen again. So let's go out and buy all the machines before anyone else can. And uh, that played out, essentially, is kind of what happened. Um, but also bear in mind that at the time, the industry was significantly smaller. And so you could you know, just plug machines into a warehouse. It wasn't that hard to find infrastructure and power. Uh, today, that's very different, right? We have these like enterprise scale miners or several publicly traded ones. Uh, it's a much different and bigger game. And if you look at those three constraints, uh, capital is one for many people in the industry. Fortunately, not for us. We've got a pretty robust balance sheet. Bitcoin's price increasing a lot has helped. Uh, you've seen, you know, the stocks across the board perform pretty well, especially in the last... Better month. than Bitcoin. Kind of crazy. So... Better than Bitcoin, which they, they tend to do, right? They, uh, but in both directions, right? They have higher beta than the underlying asset. Um, so access to capital doesn't really feel like the primary constraint, though it is always something you're monitoring. And, you know, any publicly traded company, you always want to raise money when you can, not when you have to. Um, but access to capital doesn't exactly feel like it. Uh, machines also does not feel like it today. You have far more hardware vendors in the market today than you did four years ago. Uh, Bitmain still has the dominant position, but there are other people who are making machines. And if you look at the pricing of machines, you can buy new equipment today, like the best stuff on the market for like 14, 15 bucks a terahash. So it's machines don't seem like the constraint. So what does that mean? That means that power and infrastructure is probably the constraint with how much capacity people have built. Uh, there's not that many places left where you can get 200 megawatts of capacity at four cents a kilowatt hour. So part of the logic was, well, if that's the constraint, then you want to kind of go after that. Now, uh, you want to make sure that you have homes to put miners 
so that you can go buy them because that's going to be the more challenging piece of the puzzle. It also can be the longer lead time. Um, so it takes time to develop sites. If you have a, if it's greenfield, right? So if there's nothing there, maybe you have power, uh, it can take six, nine, 12 months to build out a data center. And you want to do that all when hash price is low, not when it's high, because when it's high, you want miners plugged in and running. So a lot of this had to do with lo very long-term vision of how do you reduce costs? How do you build sort of this diversified portfolio so that you have some, uh, some deployments that will work very, very well in uh, bear markets, some deployments that will work better in bull markets and kind of, you know, build a resilient business. That's like the big long-term strategy here, but in the near term, it also had to do with what are the current constraints in the industry and what do we think is going to be the, the biggest constraint in six months from now? Yeah, I, I concur with you on the on the machines part. I think this time might be different um, around the machines because I I anticipate that both MicroBT and Bitmain would um, anticipate a run on machines as as the uh, as the Bitcoin price increases, and that's why I also tend to say to people, look, I think hash price is gonna incrementally go steadily upwards. Right, the difficulty adjustment is going to keep knocking the the price down, but over time, I think it's going to increase because the next 500 exahashes. I mean, what we're at 500 exahashes right now, right on the 30 day, um, and and hash rate has increased yeah. so much as you've alluded to, but what people often forget is that the next 500 exahashes are much harder to do than the first, right? Because as you said. Power is scarce, infrastructure is scarce. You need transformers. You need the power availability. You need you don't just you don't just need a lot of power, but you need power at a cheap price um, and access to capital. I'm a bit the, yeah yeah go go ahead. I was just gonna push on that a little. Uh, I actually think it's yes, you're correct in terms of power. It's harder to add 500 x hash, but remember that the machines are becoming more efficient, okay. so you can add hash rate without having to add power. Actually, fair enough. So there is that. Fair enough. Yeah. If you, if you translate it into, into gigawatts, um, that would, that would make more sense, right? If you, if you look at how many gigawatts the, the, the network, um, currently uses at any given moment. Um, yeah, I'm just, it, it, it just goes into, into what you said about the infrastructure being, uh, being scarce, right? So what I would like to do is, is talk about capital more. Um, and I would like to ask you what, what part that place, the, the price that you have to achieve for shareholders, the, the, because you have two motivations, right? You have the motivation of staying in the game long, long term, but then you also have a, a responsibility to your shareholders to say, Hey, like we need to do everything to keep the share price high, um, to, to speak very, very, very easily and plainly. Um, how does that at all, does that at all, um, the, do those goals fight against each other sometimes of saying, hey, we have to make long-term decisions and maybe take a hit on share price as, re as, as a result? Um, and also, how much control do the shareholders actually have over the decisions that, that Marathon makes, whether it be going into Paraguay or whether it's going into Abu Dhabi or whatever else? I think it's, um, I mean, the... You know, in response to the latter, it's the same as any other publicly traded companies, right? Like they're not 
shareholders don't vote on like day-to-day strategic decisions, but if there's very large material things that require like shareholder votes for, you do those obviously. Um, but in terms of like, yeah, it's an interesting idea. Like do those, does that idea about heads of like increase shareholder value, but like build long-term sustainable business. I think in some people's minds they do and mine, they don't. Those are the, those, those are the same thing, but it just like depends on what your time preference is. Um, and we do live in a world where people have increasingly shorter time preferences. Um, but if your goal is to build a long-term sustainable business and as a shareholder, that should be the, well, not should, like that depends on what your preferences are in your investment time horizon. But um, if that's the objective, then all the things you're doing should like be through that lens. And sometimes that can involve doing stuff that looks dilutive, but like that's not really the right term if the capital is being put to work effectively, right? It's like when startups use the term cash burn, right? Like that's a, I think that's kind of, not to get like too into semantics, but like you're not burning cash when you're building a business, you're investing in the business and that requires capital to do. The idea is that, you know, that the, those returns are going to be higher in the long run than today. That's why you're doing it. Your, your goal is not to put money into a furnace. Um, and I think that's the same when it comes to raising in public markets too, right? Like you're using, you're leveraging, you have different options available to you, but you have debt and equity and the only reason really any company is public is access to capital. Uh, otherwise you should basically be private. There's a lot of complications with being public and debt is not a great option for Bitcoin miners. Uh, we've seen a lot of people get in trouble with that in the past. Um, and if you consider where rates are at today, it looks even less attractive than it did, you know, two years ago. Right. So, uh, then you're talking about, well, if we, if you want to grow the business and build something that's long-term and sustainable, then you leverage your equity. And then the question is like, how can you do that in the most efficient way possible? That's beneficial to shareholders. Um, so obviously, you know, you want to be raising at higher valuations and lower valuations. Um, but I think I mentioned this earlier, like this is also why as a, I think as a public company, you always want to raise capital when you can, not when you have to, uh, because you need to be able to be opportunistic and have dry powder that you can deploy and not find yourself in a position where, oh, we'd love to be able to, you know, raise money, but, you know, Bitcoin's at $15,000 and stocks are depressed and it's not a good time. You'd rather have done that in a, uh, in the summer so that in the winter you have stores to make it through basically. Right. Yeah. It makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, what, what, uh, what negative effects do you see though? Um, or maybe what disadvantages that does marathon have over a large private miner when it comes to, um, to Bitcoin mining and, and the industry and growing, do you see any heavy, heavy negative side effects that, that come with, with being public? Uh, as a miner with being public, not really. I think it's kind of the, it's kind of the opposite. And I think that's why you saw so many miners go public over the last two, three years, because the, you know, the U S capital markets are so robust and they are like extremely helpful if you're trying to run a capital intensive business, which mining is, um, to, to raise capital part of the, you know, they're there are costs associated with being just in general now, like there are costs associated with being public, like listings expensive, staying on an exchange is expensive. There's 
you know, there's more, uh, there's more lawyers involved, right? Um, there's also, um, I think one of the challenging things though, is if you're a young business or a, or a startup, it's, uh, or like growing, it can be hard to be public because public shareholders don't always have the same tolerance for risk, uh, that private shareholders do. Um, so if you're trying to like do stuff that's, you know, you have to, you have to open the kimono every quarter, right. And public markets and miners do that every month with production reports actually. Um, and even more so because you can see the revenues of the business in real time, right. Especially with marathon, since we own our own pool. So it's, I don't really think we're disadvantaged in terms of like transparency of the business. Uh, if anything, it's actually an advantage to us. The difference is, so I actually think it's now that I'm, thinking out loud and coming to this conclusion, I, I, I feel more strongly that it's beneficial actually, if you're a Bitcoin miner in many ways to be public uh, than private, but that's if you're at scale, because if you're not, then you're competing against all the people who are at scale. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's very interesting that you say that. I guess um, it also puts you uh, on the pedestal. You're putting yourself on the pedestal. Like people can look at what you're doing and you can grow, right? People can critique you. Yeah every month and look at your numbers and say, this is shit, this is good, whatever. Um, and you can grow on that maybe as well um, and uh, get get more feedback than you otherwise would um, from from people outside the industry maybe uh, or, or people that are in the industry that, that might not understand what you're doing but still have a lot of expertise. Um, and yeah, like you said, like, did you ever have any backlash about any decisions that you guys have taken um, publicly when it comes to 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 to, to projects like doing, you know, what we talked about earlier, like you go into Paraguay, right? That that might be a risky move to some. Um, doing the doing the, the the shrimp coin project where you where you sell heat, um, or even the Abu Dhabi move, like obviously the critique would probably. Um, be immediately visible in the share price, right? When people when people do not like holding the stock anymore. But has there ever been any situation in which you, as a spokesperson, had to like really uh, um, work through the nights and make sure everything is is all good? Yeah, tons. I laughed because it's like feels like in this industry every week is a crisis. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. <laughs> there's uh, so there's a long list. Uh, I've got a you know I've probably got a few fun emails, uh, in my, in my inbox from, from some vocal folks. Uh, it does unfortunately tend to be this thing, but I totally understand where it comes from, where, you know, when the stock price is down, people are mad and they say mean things when the stock price is up silence, right? Like everyone's happy. So, um, unfortunately that is a way like people tend to be motivated. Um, in terms of like difficult things. So yeah, I mean, the list is like endless, uh, if I think about what was probably the most challenging time messaging wise for us, though, it would have been in the summer of 2022, um, where we were supposed to be growing hash rate. We were trying to bring this, uh, the King Mountain facility online. This was our first big deployment in Texas at this wind farm behind the meter. And that kept getting delayed for like regulatory reasons. Um, and since we weren't the owner of the site, we didn't have direct insight into it. We didn't have as much leverage in that situation. Um, and also just, you know, utilities don't move at the same pace that the Bitcoin mining industry moves at. So 
you know, we're trying to do our best to message when we think the site's going to come online and get as much info as we can, but we don't have 100% transparency into that. So we're doing our best to communicate that. But all the market seeing is like the site getting delayed and delayed and delayed, right? And the company unable to make good predictions as to when it's going to come online. And at the same time, the facility that we had that we did have running, which is about three X a hash in Montana came offline because of the storm. Mm. So this like period that was supposed to be this like huge growth year in marathon, the company was suddenly at a point where it was supposed to be a Bitcoin miner, but it wasn't mining Bitcoin. And we couldn't tell people exactly when we were going to mine Bitcoin. And that I thought was like a really, really challenging time uh, messaging wise, uh, as well as just like operational, super stressful, right? Uh, we, the team did work through that really quickly. If you just like go back and you think about things more in terms of quarters, as opposed to like days, uh, it's amazing how fast that turned around. Um, you know, it went from zero exahash in that summer to seven exahash by the end of the year. So we still more than doubled capacity over the course of the year with moving out of a facility, um, in the process, but that was a, uh, that was a fun time in the Bitcoin. Market yeah, space. I don't know why, and it's probably um, a a mediocre comparison at best. But what you just described reminds me of of being a, a holster for other people's retail machines, right? And you're in the middle, and now your your side operation doesn't really work out, and you promise these guys to bring the machines online. Um, in your case, it's just shareholders that want yeah. the, the revenue to increase. Um, how much yeah. how much does public perception matter for your stock price charlie how much does doing good or having um having having projects in place that do good for for environment or for for grid stability or for i don't know any 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 other reason um uh, how how much does that matter because at the end of the day uh, mining methane mining from from wasted methane is way more complex than mining off the grid But it has an added benefit, right? So, how do you guys weigh that internally? How much? How much does that does that play into your into your strategy? The the public perception piece of of the marathon brand. Yeah, it's it's hugely important. Um, but that's because value of anything is driven by people's perception of it and how much you know, they think it's going to add value to their life. Like the price of anything is driven by how much people value it. Right. And so the price of public companies is also driven by how much those companies align with people's values. And those values include profitability, right? They include growth. They also can include um, a lot of ESG metrics, right. Um, or being more mission driven um, and having, you know, trying to make a positive impact on the world as opposed to just maximize profits. It's like, that's not enough necessarily. Um, but I will say that there tends to be an order to those things. So, uh, you have to be profitable first. Um, if you can't keep the lights on, you can't accomplish your mission, right? So you may have this grander mission and this big thing that you want to try to do, which we certainly have as a business, but profits are what enable you to do that. Um, and that's like Steve jobs was really big on that. Uh, I think that's where I learned this from was like, He viewed uh, the purpose of profit, like Apple's purpose was to build great products. The reason that you need to be profitable as a business is to is because it allows you to continue building great products. And the more profitable you are, the more capital you have to play with to build better products. So 
the profits aren't necessarily the reason the profits are a mechanism for your broader mission. Uh, but that does not mean that they're not important. Um, and in public markets are obviously hugely important. Why would you invest in a business that is like guaranteed to lose money? Right. Uh, or to fail. That's not, that's not a very attractive investment thesis. Um, so perception matters like because it's tied to people's values, but the, the reason to do things is like, we certainly don't believe in chasing the shiny object uh, and trying to, you know, just get a bump in perception because it's what is trendy. You know, um, we do look at this long-term. So you're correct that like the methane component, like looks great. People really like it. We really like it. It's part of our, it ties to a lot of our values. Part of that being that we think Bitcoin mining can make the world a better place. And this is an example of that. Um, but it also is a very practical decision. That is the cheapest energy that we have in our entire portfolio. And if we can figure out how to do that and then scale that, that has tons of benefits for our broader mission and for our profitability, which can help us achieve our broader mission. So perception matters a ton in public markets. Um, but I also think that it is tied to fundamentals and like the reason that you exist as a business. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you have to have the money first before you can spend it, right? Which is, um, which is becoming a <laughs> ever more uncommon phenomenon, I guess, in the world that we live in around UBIs yeah. and CBDCs and all of that stuff. Like people, yeah. people often lose sight of that. Um, yeah. Anyway, so what I wanted to to ask you still, um, Charlie, before we close out here because we're running up on the hour. Um, is just to go into your into your job a little bit more um, as a spokesperson for, for the company. What what is sort of the what does your day look like? What do you do as um, as communications manager? Or what's the official title you have? Sorry, uh, it's VP Corporate Communications. What, what does that entail? Like you wake up in the morning, you you work from home, you work in an office. What do you do? Yeah. Usually when people ask me what I do, uh, I answer that differently depending on who they are, but I usually open with a bit of a joke, which is that I'm a professional Bitcoin propagandist. That's my job. Um, and then as soon as I explain what they, what I mean by that, they're like, oh yeah, but that is kind of what you are. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, my, uh, my job, I really view it as sort of like a teacher or educator, but it's to teach people about all the great and help vocalize all the great things that we as a company are doing. And then that we as an industry are doing, um, cause this is a, you're not just, you know, you're not just trying to educate people on marathon. That is the primary goal, but you also, there's a lot of people that don't understand yeah. Bitcoin and fewer that understand mining and then fewer that understand marathon. So you have to kind of like go up that ladder. Um, I was a, I was fortunate. I was a pretty early employee. I got started working with the company as a consultant in 2020 when it was a three person team. So I was like really fortunate to be involved in kind of most of the, the, the growth as a Bitcoin miner, if you would. Um, I was, I think the sixth employee to get hired. I came on full-time in July of 2021. And at the time my job was like all of the words <laughs> was like how I described it to people. Um, today, fortunately, as we've grown and scaled out stuff and we've added some super awesome and competent people to the team, My team and I sort of run uh, corporate communications and marketing, for lack of a better term. So uh, the general strategy around messaging, um, press releases, uh, 
social media presence, conferences, events? How do we think about like educating the world on what we do? And then how do we actually do that? Uh, all the video work, stuff like that. The design, the design and branding uh, is not me. It comes from uh, a great, great member on my team. Um, so kind of the look and feel and sort of like, I guess the voice and the heart of the company, if I had to like use that analogy. Um, and then we've got some other people who also do some communications work uh, who are phenomenal. We have a public policy guy who's great. We've got a separate investor relations team now. So that is starting to get like a little bit uh, specified. But my my job mostly revolves around, I like to think about it as revolving around storytelling and just doing that in lots of different ways. Sounds extremely fun. Um, Charlie, uh, before we close... It's not boring. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I didn't mean that uh, in an in a ironic sense. No, at no, all. no. I, mean, I, I, was, I was going back to the comment of... Yeah, I was going back to that idea of like there is a crisis every single week. Yeah. There's no dull moments, yeah. you know. Especially in this industry where, industry where two years feel yeah. like 10. Um, absolutely. I mean, that, that's kind of what I that's try right. to do, right? I try to tell people stories. This is now on YouTube. As I said in the beginning to you, this is the, the first episode that's going to be out. So we're going to see see how people like it and how, how, how they find it. Um, as a communications person at this company, Charlie, I'm sure you have interesting thoughts around the question that I always like to, to pose last before I ask people to um, tell um, listeners where to find them is, do you think that Bitcoin consumes enough energy and why? Yeah, uh, I do for where it's at in its current time and place. That's, uh, I don't think, I think it would be arrogant for me to say yes or no and try to decide that Bitcoin should consume more or less. It's, that's a market driven decision, right? <clears throat> the, what you see with hash price, the amount of energy that goes to securing Bitcoin with proof of work, uh, is all driven by people's value of Bitcoin. And, you know, millions of people deciding like what Bitcoin's value is to them and therefore incentivizing miners to decide how much energy to utilize uh, to try to secure the network or produce Bitcoin, whatever their incentive is. So I would say it's like, you know, one of the most beautiful things about Bitcoin is that all of this works through economic incentives, like basically nothing else. And so if and I do believe in sort of the long-term efficiency of free markets. And so, you know, you can have, you can have inefficiencies or irrational, irrational, irrational like decisions or things that occur like in the short term or the, the medium term, but like over the long run, it's quite efficient. Um, and it's just a reflection of people's value. So I would say at its current moment, yeah, that's what the market has decided. Do I think it will, uh, use more energy in the future? Uh, Probably, especially if Bitcoin's price goes up, right? Um, or just as machines become more efficient. Um, and at that moment in time, that'll probably be the right amount uh, for it. But it's wonderfully balanced with the way that the economic incentives in this entire Bitcoin ecosystem work. That's probably the most diplomatic answer I've gotten so far. So, so far, over the, all the episodes I've done, everybody said, ah, no, it doesn't use enough yet. One person said, yes, it uses absolutely enough. You're the first person to say, nah, neither. Oh, it's the market that decides. <laughs> so, so that's, that's really great. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, 
Charlie, this has been great. Thank you very much. We, we got a very good overview, I think, um, over what, what the situation at, at Marathon looks like currently, what projects you guys are working on, where you guys are going globally, uh, going into the halving. I, I said to you in the, in the, in the pre-talk um, that I think your, your nights will not be um, blessed with, with a lot more sleep before the halving. There's still a bunch of, of mining to be done, I think, um, before we um, halve the block reward for, for everybody involved. Um, last but not least, Charlie, tell people where they, where they can find you, where, where you want to send them, um, where can they learn more about your, your company if they want to? Yeah. Um, company's website is mara.com, M-A-R-A.com. It's our ticker. So try to keep everything pretty simple to remember. Um, we're on Twitter as uh, MarathonDH. Uh, I'm not super exciting to follow on Twitter, uh, but I'm uh, Charlie Shu on Twitter, S-E-H-U. Um, those are probably the two best resources uh, for the time being. And then if you're curious to find anything else like IR contact or general corporate company contact, all that's on, you can find all that through those channels. So that's where I'd point people. All right, brilliant. Guys, if you enjoyed this, if you have questions, if you have comments, anything positive or negative, I kind of like negative comments more because it gives me an ability to change things up and weigh up uh, what I can improve. And we are now, as I said uh, before on YouTube as well, so make sure to, to hit a follow, hit a subscribe on the channel. Um, leave some comments um, under the under the video, that would help a lot. And yeah, if, I mean, you guys all know what to do really here, so I don't have to educate anybody on that. Um, with that being said, thank you, Charlie, again for, for coming on. Um, and until next time, guys, thank you very much. Bye-bye.